You are listening to episode 16 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Fisher, welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. I'm thrilled to have Professor Tim Mulgan with me today on the podcast. He is the professor of philosophy at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and professor of moral and political philosophy at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He's the author of several books. However, today he's here to discuss his 2015 book titled Purpose in the Universe, The Moral and Metaphysical Case for an Anthropocentric Purposivism. Welcome to Stoicism on Fire, Professor Mulgan. Thank you. It's been about a year since I read your book and was actually quite fascinated by it simply because your argument for AP is very similar to the arguments offered by the ancient Stoics. That obviously caught my interest as a practitioner of Stoicism and uh, the reason why I reached out to you. As we get through the, you know, the dialogue here, I'll be curious to see how close you think it really is. I don't think it's the same, certainly, but I think it's close enough that what it does is your book offers some support for the traditional Stoic arguments for a, uh, what they called a, a providential cosmos. Different terminology, but in a sense, very similar. So to begin, and I realize this is a huge feat, it's a big book, but is there a one-minute elevator speech? So, I mean, the simplest way of doing it, I think, is just to take the two words separately. So, so purposivism, as I use it, is the general idea that the universe has a purpose, that there's a reason why it exists. Um, the one reason I use the word purposivism rather than more specific theism is that I want to leave open the metaphysical or logical possibility that there could be a cosmic purpose, a reason for the existence of without it being the creation of a particular person. So I'm wanting so one kind of step away from a human-centered view of the cosmos is to think that the reason for its existence might not be anything that we would recognize as a person like us. But on the other hand, one version, and the, most, the version we're all most familiar with, one version of purposivism is theism, where the reason the universe has a purpose is because it was created by a god whose purpose that is. The other half of it, the ananthropocentric, is simply the idea that the purpose that the universe has is one to which human beings are irrelevant. So if there's a God, then God is not interested in us, particularly not as individuals, but probably not as a, as a species. And our ex- existence in the cosmos is an accident. So there's a reason why the universe exists. And it might be to produce wise or knowing or sophisticated creatures somewhere else, but our existence in the universe is just an act. So it's putting together one of the main ideas of theism, which is that there is some cosmic purpose. There are objective values that are built into the fabric of the universe, together with one of the central atheist ideas, which is the idea that 
our existence is an accident and that we are not part of that. By accident, do you mean a random accident or a byproduct of processes that whatever purpose the cosmos might have were an incidental byproduct of that as opposed to a freak accident or purely by chance? I, I want to leave open both of those possibilities in, in the general idea of what AP is. But a lot of the arguments for AP, the arguments for the, the purpose of a side of it, rely on particular features of the universe. So one of the arguments that I borrow from theism, what's become known as the fine-tuning argument, the argument that the physical constants that govern the universe seem to be remarkably fine-tuned to produce certain kinds of outcomes, and in particular to produce life. And so if part of your reason for believing in AP rather than atheism is that you think that's a fact about the universe that cries out for explanation, then our existence would be, on the AP view, a byproduct of whatever the fine-tuned process is actually designed to produce. So it's not strictly an, an accident. Okay. Yeah, because in Stoicism, the, the cosmos has a will, has an intention, and it would be fair to say that humans are a part of it, but a big part of Stoicism is accepting that the fact that things happen that are for the good of the whole, for the good of the cosmos, and not necessarily good for us. So a part of the process is we are not necessarily the, the focal point of the purpose of the cosmos. That's where I think we're probably a little... Stoics would be a little bit closer to benevolent theism than where you're at, but, but not too far. It's, it's remarkably close. I'm curious what theories or what thinkers inspired you in the, in the development of AP? So the origin of it is that I was, I was teaching first year introduction to metaphysics, and I was doing the arguments for the existence of God, which are the standard, the standard arguments you would do if you did first year philosophy. So there's ontological arguments, cosmological arguments, fine-tuning arguments, arguments for miracles. And then on the other side, you do the standard arguments against the existence of God, which the most prominent is the argument from evil. And it struck me, as I think it struck a lot of people over the last 2,000 years, that there's a disconnect between what you get at the end of those two sets of arguments. So a lot of the philosopher's arguments for the existence of God get you to the point of believing that there is some kind of God or some kind of purpose, some kind of order to the universe, but it's often at a very abstract metaphysical level. So there's our first cause or the universe is fine-tuned for something or other that has something to do with life or the ontological argument gives you the existence of a necessary perfect being, but it doesn't tell you anything about what necessity and perfection amount to. On the other hand, the most prominent atheist arguments, or a lot of them, are attacks on a particular feature of the traditional Western monotheist God, namely the benevolence of God. And so it just seemed to me that it was worth exploring what would happen if you put those two arguments together. So if you were persuaded by both of those sets of arguments so that you thought there was a purpose, but 
you couldn't reconcile believing in that purpose with believing that it was benevolent to human beings if it was the purpose of a of a god and i thought that was that was worth exploring and the the other part of the context for me is that most of my own work is in moral philosophy and i work predominantly in the utilitarian tradition so the tradition of bentham and Sidgwick and more recently people like Derek Parfit. And that's a tradition where the argument that theists give against the argument from evil, so the traditional theodicies, the traditional attempts to explain how a morally perfect God could have produced the universe that we find ourselves in, those are arguments that it's particularly hard for a utilitarian to accept because a lot of the arguments, a lot of the theodicy arguments involve put, putting weight on the value of freedom as opposed to the negative value of suffering, for instance. So there's a lot of suffering in the world. The explanation for it is that God has given us freedom to choose, and the consequence of that is that we sometimes make the wrong choices and there's a lot of suffering. And utilitarians in particular are very resistant to that kind of argument because they will emphasize the amount of suffering and the amount of innocent suffering and especially the amount of innocent suffering of animals especially animal suffering before the evolution of human beings so on the one hand for a utilitarian it's very hard to accept the traditional theist arguments for a benevolent god but on the other hand i think especially in relation to the work that i've done which is on obligations to people in the future Utilitarians have a, a strong sense that there are objective values, that there are things that have a normative force or a normative pull or that call us to act in certain ways that can't be reduced to our own self-interest. And that's in particular when utilitarian morality calls on us to make potentially very large sacrifices to further the interests of people in the distant future, then it's very hard to give an account of that that's based on enlightened self-interest or reciprocity or anything of that sort. So there are a lot of utilitarians now who think that morality is in part about responding to objective, non-natural moral facts. And it seems to me there are two connections with between that view and the idea that there's a cosmic purpose. So one direction is that the cosmic purpose gives you a very good explanation of one source of normative facts. So one reason for doing something is that it fits in with or furthers or reflects or instantiates the cosmic purpose. So some possible human activities might be more like that than others, and that would give us a, a reason to do them. The other direction where there's a connection between the cosmic purpose and utilitarianism is that a lot of the arguments for the existence of God, even the arguments that are presented as traditionally as being metaphysical arguments, such as fine-tuning and cosmological and ontological, these arguments also have a normative or evaluative dimension to them because 
what often happens is you're picking out a feature of the universe and you're saying, this feature of the universe cries out for explanation. And one natural atheist response to that is to say, well, look, the universe had to be some way. There are infinitely many ways it could have been. It happens to be this way. We think it's amazing that it's got life in it, but what's objectively significant about life? So people who are attracted to those ideas tend to be people who, for whom it makes sense to think that there are objective values, at least in the sense that there are some ways that the universe might have been which are remarkable in some independent or objective sense rather than just that strikes us as interesting or that seems remarkable to us because of this interest that we have. And so in particular, if you are attracted to utilitarian, utilitarianism, then you're going to think that there's something interesting about the existence of sense being. And therefore that states of the that states of the world of the universe that contain such beings or contain certain kinds of patterns are objectively more valuable or more interesting than purely chaotic states. And therefore that gives you a motivation to to seek the explanation. So you brought up a, several touch points, I would call them, with, with Stoicism there. The first being when you're contrasting benevolent theism and atheism and their arguments for and against God, you said, what you're offering is a different sort of God. God of a different sort is what I think you actually said. The other one, uh, which I do believe is what Stoicism offers. It's not a traditional theistic God, uh, certainly not atheism but something that falls in that middle space in between. The other point that um, I think there's a key connection is the idea of whatever the purpose may be. From reading the book, it's obvious that you're not proposing exactly what the purpose of the, of the universe is, because that's something that we will struggle to know, even though we might have some, some insights. But the point is, is that the places where we can have insight about what the purpose may be, the best that we can do is live in agreement with it, which again is a a Stoic concept to live in agreement with nature, live in agreement with whatever the purpose of the universe might be, because the purpose of the universe may not be consistent with my desires, my intentions, what I want. It's doing its own thing, for lack of a better language, and I'm better off if I align myself with it rather than try to fight against it. Because in Stoicism, the problem of evil is solved by arguing that what we perceive as humans as being evil is not evil to the cosmos. Again, the purpose of the cosmos is different. So when we see the suffering, it's, it's not evil to the cosmos that we are experiencing suffering or that animals are experiencing suffering. You wrote that AP is most comfortable with an, an impersonal cosmic purpose. And I think that is also in line with Stoicism. While there's, very, there's language in the Stoic texts that make it sounds as if there's a personal relationship between some of the Stoics and the divinity, but it's never to the extent of the, the kind of a personal relationship that you would see in an Abrahamic faith where there's a, a petitionary prayer or an expectation that the cosmos is going to change things for you because you're not happy with the way things are or you want something to be different in your life. The other point that I wanted to touch on was, and, and you did touch on it slightly, was that you started with what you call substantial ethical commitments, which, as you've, as you've said, is uh, basically utilitarian. And then you argue from there to a 
purposeful cosmos and a what you what you call a metaphysical and epistemological picture that supports that normative ethics. So you've gone from an ethical position to looking for a metaphysical position that would support it. Is that fair? I think that is, I mean, that's the main direction of the argument. I mean, I like to think it's, it's perhaps not as cherry picking as, as, as it might sound. So I think there are, there are two sort of extreme ways you can go in terms of the relationship between mor- morality and metaphysics. And very much the dominant way of doing things in contemporary analytic philosophy is that you start with metaphysics, which in that context, to a large extent, means starting with science and a very naturalist, reductionist, materialist view of what the world is like. And then ethics just sort of comes along and has to make the best of whatever the other philosophers have told you the world is like. To a large extent, that's the dominant conception. And so what I'm doing is pushing back against that. But I don't want to go entirely to the other extreme, which would be where you say your ethics can completely determine your metaphysics and you just pick whatever metaphysics goes in with your, with your ethics. Because I think the two need to end up in some sort of equilibrium or what John Rawls referred to as sort of wide reflective equilibrium where you take your your sort of deepest ethical convictions and your most solidly grounded metaphysical or empirical views about the world and you try and get them to fit together. And so there can so in that sort of picture there tends to be give and take on both sides. So the the utilitarian ethic that's going to emerge if we buy into something like AP, might might be quite different from, or different in some respects from the utilitarian ethic that we started out with. Okay, and that's interesting because one of the modern debates, scholarly debates amongst the academics about Stoicism is whether what they would call physics, which would be more appropriately titled natural, natural science, metaphysics, and includes theology, whether that is foundational to ethics in Stoicism, or whether they are interdependent. And I I personally think that the argument for them being interdependent is a little bit stronger than physics being a foundation for ethics, which sounds like that's what you're suggesting, this integrated, interdependent relationship between an ethical view and a metaphysical view, or in um, Jürgen Habermas's language, I I think he's the one who talks about a model of the world and a model for the world. Yes, definitely, I think. I think the sort of integrated view strikes me as being the most the most plausible one especially in the in the historical context i think there's a temptation among modern moral philosophers to think that you can to some extent pick and choose when you're when you're looking at previous philosophers whether it's ancient philosophers or earlier philosophers who were immersed in Christianity. And in particular, the moral and political philosophers will try and detach the theist or religious or other kinds of cosmological commitments of earlier philosophers. And there's a temptation to say, well, we don't buy any of that, but we can take the Stoic ethics or we can take 
Locke's views about human equality or Kant's views about rationality and duty. We can just abstract those out of their religious metaphysical context and and not lose anything. And I'm inclined to think, I mean, this isn't in any way original. There are a lot of people who, who worry about this. I'm inclined to think that that's always going to be more difficult than it sounds because there often is a very sort of intimate relationship between the way people thought we should live in the world and what they thought the world was like. That's quite interesting because you just stepped right into the modern debate in Stoicism, which is there are basically two, two fields of thought on the practitioner side. Modern Stoicism is a movement that is doing exactly what you said. Yeah, we, we like the ethical aspects of Stoicism. We don't like the metaphysics. We don't like the theology. So we're going to extract the, the ethics. And you know, my, my argument from a traditional Stoic perspective is that in, in doing that, you are losing a lot of the, the meaning, the, the tools, the underpinnings for the ethics. So the ethics necessarily change. In Stoicism, as an example, well, obviously to live in agreement with nature entails a picture of nature. And if nature has a purpose, then the picture of nature is different than nature being a uh, reductionist, materialist, completely serendipitous happenstance. And the idea of living in agreement with those two pictures of the world would entail, to some degree, a different way of approaching ethical problems, I would, I would argue. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, no, I think I would definitely agree with that. And just going back to something earlier in terms of the relationship between Stoicism and, and AP. So I'm not, I mean, I'm not very expert in Stoicism, but one of the things that I think of as being a defining feature of, of AP is that in order for it to be interesting, in order for the sort of ethical lessons or the ethical orientation that you get from AP to be different from what you get from atheism. We need to have some idea of an asymmetrical relationship between us and the cosmic purpose. And that might be something that that has some echoes in Stoicism. So we we're used to the sort of atheist picture where there isn't a cosmic purpose and the theist picture where there's a God and you have a a two-way relationship with God, which I mean is asymmetrical in lots of ways, obviously because God is God and you're you. But but there is a sense that you you care about God and God cares about you. Whereas in AP, the idea is just because the cosmic purpose or the God isn't interested in us doesn't mean we shouldn't be interested in in it. And but it could it could be a source of value or meaning for our lives, even if nothing we do amounts to anything that's sort of cosmically important. And that did sound, I mean, especially from the way you were expressing it, that sounds to me like it's quite close to the stoic idea of living in harmony with nature or agreement with nature, except in this sense the nature that you're living in harmony or agreement with or that you're trying to reflect is the aspect of nature that represents the cosmic purpose so it might be it might be different from nature in a more sort of everyday sense of 
getting on in the world or living living in harmony with other terrestrial organisms and things, because all of that might pass by them. Yeah, that's a very good point. Nature and nature and stoicism doesn't mean just trees and plants. It it literally means uh, the the whole cosmos. So living in agreement with nature doesn't mean moving to the woods. It's it's not a a Walden Pond scenario. Instead, it is living in agreement with the way things happen in nature would be a better way to phrase it. The Stoics offered a an analogy to dog tied to a cart, and the Stoics would say that the cart is fate or providence. It's the way that the cosmos is working, and in our lives, we are tied to the cart. We are the dog. We're going to follow the cart, whether we like it or not, because the cosmos is going to do what it's going to do. So our choice is we follow the cart willingly and make as much as we can of the path that we're on. That doesn't mean that um, we don't have any any moral responsibility for the choices made along the way or any anything like that. We're not. It's not a hard determinism. They were compatibilists, but nonetheless, there are very hard constraints on what we are in control of. And so again, the the dog tied to the cart because the cosmos has its its own purpose, whether we like it or not. And the struggle against that purpose in Stoicism is what causes us so much psychological angst. That was the teaching of the Stoa. When we fight against the cosmic purpose, the way things happen in nature, when we struggle against that and wish for things to be some other way, that's what causes us psychological problems or disturbances. Right. So I think that's, I mean, that's got an interesting relationship with AP, but I think there would be, I mean, there would be some differences in emphasis, at least. In AP, the the cosmic purpose might be sort of operating at such a level that, you know, if we're not aware of it, then it might not impact on us at all. And we could carry on our lives perfectly successfully in sort of everyday terms. But it's just that, as a matter of fact, we wouldn't be doing things that reflected this cosmic purpose that we were unaware of or uninterested in. The reason within AP for trying to do things that are in harmony with the cosmic purpose or that agree with it or that reflect it in some sense, the reason for doing those things is meant to be just because that's intrinsically valuable in itself, not because we might otherwise be dissatisfied or thwarted, except insofar as we might find it unsatisfactory if we think that what we're doing is not in any way related to a cosmic purpose. But that's the only sort of dissatisfaction. Yeah, and I think I probably put too much emphasis on the dissatisfaction because the Stoics, in fact, argue that there's only one thing that's good, and that is virtue. And virtue is your own moral uh, excellence. So the following of the cart becomes uh, a virtuous act that brings about the state of the Greek term eudaimonia, which is typically translated happiness, but doesn't translate well into happiness. It's more a state of of well-being or a good flow in life. And so by aligning yourself with the cosmic purpose, you, you have this good flow in life. But the key difference here is that you're not doing that to get the good flow. You're following the cart because it's the virtuous thing to do. It's the right thing to do to align yourself with the cosmos. The result of that is a good flow in life. The result of that is well-being. So it's, uh, it's aiming at virtue and getting well-being or getting a good flow. So I think maybe there's not as much disconnect between 
AP and Stoicism there, it sounds like they're obviously a little bit different, but but not necessarily a big disconnect. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, one of the things about AP is that in itself, it's a metaphysical claim. It's it's a metaphysical claim plus the idea that this metaphysical picture where there's a non-human-centered cosmic purpose has some normative force for for us, even though we're irrelevant to it. That's the view that I call normative AP. But that's a very general claim which could be fleshed out in lots of different ways depending on what your particular normative theory is about how we should respond to the normative force of the cosmic purpose and the objective values that that go with it. And and so partly because of my background and my sort of pre-existing ethical moral philosophy sympathies, I'm tending to develop it in a consequentialist kind of way so that you say, here's this, there are these objective values and that morality is going to be in some sense about responding to those values and seeking to promote them and do or create things that are objectively valuable to some degree because they resemble the the cosmic purpose. But you could instead, you know, you could take it in a virtue ethical kind of direction and you could say maybe virtue is somehow modeled on the cosmic purpose or it's about the right kind of orientation towards the cosmic purpose and so on. So so one of the things I do a little bit towards the end of the book is try and explore some of the different ways that other ethical theories might might respond to it. Yeah, I, I recall that. I do have one question for you. When I have engagements typically on social media with atheist Stoics or agnostic Stoics, those who, who see value in the ethical aspect of Stoicism but, but have no interest in the, uh, the metaphysics, one of the questions that's typically posed to me is, what difference does it really make? What practical difference does it make whether I think that the universe is providentially ordered or has a purpose or not? What differences does it make in my daily practice, my daily life? And I'm wondering, from the perspective of, of AP, if someone were to ask you that question specifically, what difference does it make? Why, why do I need AP? Why do I need to believe that the, or maybe need is not the right word, why should I, what motive is there for me to believe that the universe has a purpose? What difference would it make in my life? How would you answer that? Yeah, I think, I mean, that is, that is a very good question, and I do get I do get asked that, and I think it is, it's a difficult question for, for AP and possibly in the same way that it's a difficult question for the, for the Stoic, because the traditional theist has a variety of, of answers that are not available to, to AP. Right. So there's the sort of purely sort of instrumental, self-serving kinds of reasons about wanting to go to heaven or not wanting to go to hell, or there's the more mainstream sort of theological answers about having a certain kind of reciprocal relationship with God, which will be valuable, and so on. And so those sort of things are not available on AP. So I think one thing, one thing that AP perhaps might need to admit is that coming to believe that there's a cosmic purpose in the AP sense might not change your life as much as shifting from atheism to benevolent theism would or vice versa. But it doesn't follow from that that it doesn't make any difference. And I think there are two places that it, that it can make a difference. If you're, if you're someone who is worried about the threat of moral nihilism, 
the idea that just nothing matters because you've got a model of what it would be for things to matter that belongs to a benevolent theist worldview, and then you lose faith in that kind of God, and you think, well, without God, nothing is going to, nothing really matters, and nothing good or bad. Then coming to believe in AP might give you some some foundation for believing that there are normative facts, that there are some some things that are better or or worse. But the more particular way in which it might play out is you might have a pluralistic view in which you think, well, there are a number of different things that might provide us with normative reasons. And some of those might have nothing to do with the cosmic purpose. So we might recognize that, and this is a thought that appeals particularly to utilitarians, we might recognize that human suffering and animal suffering matters to humans and animals even if we don't think it it matters from the cosmic perspective. But the cosmic purpose and the the values that explain the existence of the universe might provide another source of normative reasons. And those might be sufficient to tip the balance in particular cases where you're you're deciding between one activity and another, and one of the activities I mean, this is all going to be at a very sort of low level, given our smallness relative to the cosmos. But you might think, you know, one of these activities is more like the cosmic values, whether it's beautiful or complex or ordered or organized or creative or whatever. And all of those things are are likely to be things that we already thought were valuable partly because if we don't recognize them to some degree as being valuable, then we're not, we're not likely to be persuaded that the fact that the universe has these features is a reason that cries out for explanation and so on. So it's not so much that the cosmic purpose tells us that things are valuable that we didn't realize were valuable at all, but it gives an extra layer or an extra depth, if you like, to the value that they, that they have. In the same way that a theist might say, well, everybody thinks that creating beautiful art or beautiful literature is worth doing, but the theist has an extra reason to think that's worth doing because they think that it mirrors and honors the creative love of God. And the fact that you've got an extra reason for doing something that you already had reason to do might give you more reason to, to do it. The final place where it might, where AP might make a difference is that depending on your story about the cosmic purpose and how accessible it is to us, you might certainly think that trying to learn about the cosmic purpose and trying to figure it out is a more valuable activity if you think there might be one than if you're an, an atheist. So certain kinds of theoretical pursuit have a point that they don't necessarily have for the, for the atheist. And again, that's a matter of degree, but it's a thing that you know, some theists go in for those sort of theoretical activities because not only are they discovering how the world works, but they're discovering the mind and the purpose of, of God. And also, depending on what we find out about the cosmic purpose, we might discover that there are things that we could do at a collective level, perhaps not individually, but there might be things we could all do together that would have some level of cosmic purpose or cosmic value 
and thinking about AP might give us a special reason to go in for those sort of Okay. It was interesting. You brought to mind uh, the, uh, the Stoic Seneca, a uh, Roman senator also, but he, in his preface to book one of natural questions, which is meteorology, cosmology, and so forth, he talks about a number of theological topics, but the point was, as he said, that life wouldn't even be worth living if he were unable to contemplate these things. It's an interesting idea that our search for understanding the divine purpose can, in its sense, give us a purpose, a human purpose. One passage I want to read that's kind of extended and, and takes me into the next area that I wanted to talk to you about was, was this. You wrote, some atheists find traditional theist arguments worthless, arguments from evil unanswerable, and the case for naturalism compelling. They conclude that there is nothing to be said for theism. Some theists find some argument for BT compelling and regard arguments for evil as worthless. They conclude that there is nothing to be said for atheism. None of these people is likely to find this book very interesting, but many philosophers agree that knockdown arguments are rare anywhere in philosophy, and especially here. An emerging theme in the literature of philosophy of religion is that our universe is religiously ambiguous. BT and atheism are both reasonable interpretations of the available evidence. AP offers an alternative interpretation, a new way to read the cosmos. Now, when I read that, it struck me because it's an argument that I've made repeatedly in my blog and on my podcast, and that is that I've been both an atheist and a Christian. I am neither now, but I understand and can appreciate that both of those positions are arrived at by people who have very good reasons for believing them and can back them up with evidence, and that there is no argument that would be convincing to either of them from the other side that's going to sway them. Now that I'm in the middle, position between those two, which is where AP is also, I find the same thing. There's no, there's no argument that I'm going to be able to provide to an atheist to convince them that, that a providential cosmos is worth considering or has any value in their life. And there's no way I'm going to be able to convince someone of the Abrahamic faith that, that uh, Stoicism has the answer either. The point of all of that is, is that I like the idea, personally, of there being multiple reasonable paths that we can agree that reasonable and rational people can disagree on these topics. And in the YouTube video, which I'm going to post in the show notes, where you are, I forget where it occurred now, but there's a YouTube video where you're talking with I think, two other philosophers, and the, the person who's introducing it brings out the point that AP could reopen a dialogue between atheists and benevolent theists, because traditionally they talk past one another, but that in any attempt to address AP, they have to address the opposite side in a way that might open some dialogue so that atheists and benevolent theists stop talking past one another and maybe start understanding one another and realizing that they could be equally viable paths for, for different people. I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I suppose one thing to say is just that that's the hope, in some sense, with the, with, with the project that you can't, that once there's a third option, you can't anymore just say, oh, well, I don't like this feature of the other view, and therefore I get to have my view, because a lot of the things that atheists particularly don't like about theism are features that AP doesn't have, and conversely with the things that theists don't like about atheism are things that, that 
AP doesn't have either. So my experience of discussing the view has to a large extent been limited to either sort of very informal situations with family and friends and people tend to be sort of polite and say that that sounds very interesting and discussions with philosophy and that's partly because the book is it's published by a philosophical press and it's I tried to make it as accessible as possible to people who are not immersed in the philosophical literature, but it is written primarily for, for other philosophers and, and it is priced for university libraries in particular. And so most of, the, I suppose most of the conversations I've had are either in the context with other philosophers or they're with people who've come across the book in the way that you did and have found that it struck a chord with them, which is very nice, but you, you don't quite know, you know why it struck a chord with one person and didn't and didn't with another. Um, within philosophy, I think the thing that I've noticed is that, and this might, I mean, this is just an accident, I think, of the people that I happen to know in philosophy, but on the whole, the people I, I know who are already in philosophy on the theist side are more open to discussing AP than, than the people I know who are on the atheist side. And the main reason for that, I think, is that atheism is basically the default metaphysical position in English language philosophy. I mean, particularly un unless you're in a specifically religious institution, I would think, and not always. And, and sometimes even there, that would be the default. So there's a tendency for people to be able to not reflect as philosophically on all of their atheist commitments as you have to reflect on them if you're a theist, right? So if you gave a paper in a philosophy seminar and you just said, I'm assuming physicalism, which is the view that everything in the universe is whatever it is that's revealed by physics or will eventually be revealed by physics, and it's taken for granted that that automatically gives you atheism, may or may not be true because we don't know what reveal, but that's what tends to be taken for granted. You could just say, that's my starting point, and that's what I'm going to do. And if people raised questions about whether physicalism was true or not, you could kind of, I mean, A, that would be less likely to happen, and B, you could just say, well, that's what I'm assuming, and lots of people go in for that. Whereas it would be harder in a lot of philosophical contexts to go in and say, I'm assuming the existence of the Christian God. And I'm just, that's just the metaphysical background that I'm, that I'm using. So I'm very aware that, you know, there are lots of cultural contexts in which it's much harder to be an atheist or an agnostic even than it is to be a religious believer. But in the, in the context of philosophy, so the students that I teach who are senior undergraduate philosophers and the colleagues that I talk to who are coming from a religious background, they're very used to being constantly challenged about these aspects of their metaphysical view. And so they're much more, they're often much more aware of or interested in the possibilities of, of there being a third, a third way. Well, that's, that's intriguing because I would say that's exactly my experience in Stoicism. And by that, I mean the atheists and agnostics tend to be pretty antagonistic toward traditional Stoicism, whereas the theists, people from a variety of different faiths, Christians, Muslims, 
uh, and people who open to more, I would say, you know, spiritual concepts, maybe Eastern concepts, Buddhism, Hinduism, are very open to it. And so my experience echoes yours perfectly. The, the agnostic and atheist Stoics assume the position of, you know, you use the term physicalism. You know, I would go one step further, maybe call it scientism. You know, the, the idea that science is going to be able to explain everything, we just need a little bit more time. But that's an assumed starting place. And so every discussion has to start with uh, an argument over, over the existence of God or the metaphysics. It led to, in our case, we had to create a, an entirely separate Facebook group because it just became, every day was arguing, you know, is there a God? Listen, we don't want to talk about that. We're trying to talk about Stoicism and the practice of Stoicism. But yeah, very much my experience. The theists are very open to traditional Stoicism. And, and what, as I've said in my podcast, I believe the, the Stoic conception of God is too much God for an atheist and too little God for most theists. And, but the theists are willing to listen and discuss a God that they are not, really don't have any resonance with. It doesn't provide them, as we discussed earlier, with the additional things that they want, an afterlife or whatever the case might be, but they're still open to to discussing it, whereas the many of the, not all, but many of the atheists and agnostics, it's, you know, it's a closed issue, it's wrong, it's uh, anti-science, uh, you know, science has the answers and, and, and we're, we are moving on. In fact, some of the leaders of that, of that movement take that position, that any meta- anything that is metaphysical, that is not consistent with modern reductionist materialist science, is anathema. Yeah, I think, I mean, in the philosophical context that, that I'm familiar with, another thing that's, that's perhaps going on is that the arguments against theism that, that AP picked up on are sort of real existential problems for anyone who's, who's a theist. Right? So in particular, the problem of evil. If you're a religious believer, you m- might well have a theodicy of some kind that you think is intellectually perfectly satisfactory. But it's still the case that you're confronted on a daily basis with the fact that awful things happen to people in the universe. So you're having to, you're having to deal with that and you can't be sort of thinking that that's irrelevant to ethics or that a position that bypassed it wouldn't have something to, to say for it. Whereas the idea that a cosmic purpose might be a source of normativity for, for human beings, which is a natural thing for, for people from a religious background, I think, is just not something in a lot of cases that resonates for people who are, who are atheists. So they just, they don't have the sort of felt personal need to, to explore that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with John Gray, the, the atheist uh, John Gray, but one of the things that I appreciate about his writings is he is, he's a very, I would say, an honest, very honest atheist, not imply that atheists are dishonest. I'm just saying that he's honest in the sense that he's willing to confront the, the ultimate end of atheism, the nihilism. He's willing to say that most atheists carry with them a lot of Christian concepts. So, I mean, atheism really is a Modern atheism is a response to Christianity, largely, and they carry with them a lot of concepts about morality that they can't justify from an atheist metaphysic, if we want to call it that, but they accept it and don't really question how they can justify the ethic. I think that's what you were referring to. They, there's, there's an implied ethic there that they don't feel they need to justify, which ultimately, from my perspective, I don't think they can justify 
unless they latch on to some other ideas that come from other metaphysical positions. Because if, if we truly do live in a absolutely meaningless, random, serendipitous universe and, and our consciousness is just a mere accident, then what do you hang a normative ethic on? What possible underpinning could there be? And we really do end up in the idea that you know, all, all things are permissible. Yeah, so there's certainly, I mean, there's a lot there that I have, that I have sympathy for myself. So part of the sort of philosophical worry that leads me down the path to something like AP is a dissatisfaction with the state of what the, the bit of philosophy that philosophers tend to call metaethics, which is the, the study of the metaphysics and ontology and language of, of ethics and what makes ethical statements true and are they true and those sort of things. And there is a sort of an, an old view or traditional view in some ways, that the on, only alternatives are nihilism and some kind of God. And there's a, most of the work in contemporary academic metaethics consists of people trying to find positions that they assume that there isn't a God, but they want to generate gen, genuine normativity. And so generally, the default position among utilitarians is that some kind of ethical naturalism or some kind of anti-realist expressivist kind of story some story that's perfectly respectable in physicalist terms is is going to give us all the normativity that we want um, but there's a sort of minority movement i guess within sort of broadly utilitarian circles of people thinking that actually we need we need genuine non-norm non-natural normative acts and then there's a further question of whether those facts might be just a sui generis kind of fact that subsists on its own, like mathematical facts or logical facts, or whether you might need some metaphysical basis for them. And it's the worry that you might need some metaphysical basis for them that pushes you into the direction of thinking that if you can't have a cosmic purpose, then you are in effect forced into something like nihilism. Because you have nothing to say to the person who just says, I don't care about that. Exactly. One question I would like to ask is, what next for AP? Where do you have a, is there a, a plan beyond the book? Uh, yes. So I've got some of the things that I'm working on are not directly about AP. So I do quite a lot of work on obligations to future people and in particular obligations to people we might um, Obligations that we might have to people who will be living in futures that might be very different from the from the present. So I've talked about futures that are broken by climate change or transformed by various technologies, and I'm doing some thinking at the moment about the ethics of sending people out to colonize the universe and so on, which which intersects a little bit with what the purpose of the cosmos might be and whether we might be alone in it and and some of those questions. But that's a more purely ethical kind of project the other project that i'm starting to work on is something that's directly about ap partly it's a a sort of semi-historical project so i don't i don't have any particular expertise or training in in history or the history of philosophy but i'm intrigued by the idea that the sort of contemporary divide between atheism and what i call benevolent theism as being the only real sort of lived positions, that that's certainly not a 
universal feature of human experience or of the philosophical landscape. So partly what I'm trying thinking of doing is sort of having a book where I put AP more directly in dialogue with other views that are either sort of outliers within the atheist camp or outliers within the theist camp or views that are genuinely alternative. I noticed you mentioned uh, Hinduism and Taoism as uh, being it was similar, some shared characteristics with AP. I'm assuming those would be traditions you would look at. Yeah. So those would be traditions I would look at. And also um, Stoicism and some of the other classical Greek and Hellenistic. Well, excellent. I, I certainly hope you do dive a little bit more into Stoicism because I think there's a, there's a lot of shared ideas between AP and Stoicism. So that would be interesting to, to see you dive into it and, and see what Stoicism has to offer. Yeah. And I've, I mean, since I got your first email, I've been having more of a look at stoicism, and I do think there's definitely some synergies there. Well, again, thank you very much for your time. I look forward to, to being engaged with you. If, you. if you do decide to dive into stoicism, I would love to have some further conversations with you, and maybe we can have another engagement on stoicism on fire at some point in the future. Yes, thank you. No, that, would be, that would be lovely. With that, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on Stoicism on Fire. And to all the listeners, the book is expensive. It's $84 in hardback. I think, uh, Professor Mulgan, you said you're trying to get it out in paperback or hoping that they do that. The Kindle version is certainly less. It's 68. And it does have real page numbers, which not all Kindle versions of books do. If any of my listeners are at all interested in justifications or I would say arguments that help support the idea of purpose in the cosmos, which is a fundamental feature of Stoicism. This is definitely a, a wonderful book. It's written for academics, but it is not written in a way that I think it's beyond a general audience to understand it. Anybody that's interested in Stoicism, I think will find a tremendous amount of material in the book that will support their traditional Stoic practice in modern times. Therefore, for anybody who's interested in material like this and can afford the book, I strongly encourage you to go buy it. I think you will find it very helpful if you are currently engaged in traditional Stoic practice. It is written in a way that certainly makes it understandable to the general reader. In the show notes, you'll find links to an article, a YouTube video that will allow you to explore Professor Mulgan's idea of AP a little further. Additionally, Professor Mulgan is attempting to get permission from his publisher to provide us with a link to the first chapter of the book. If that occurs, I will put that in the show notes, and you'll have the opportunity to read the first chapter free of charge and decide if you want to buy the book afterwards. This is the very first interview on the Stoicism on Fire podcast. I certainly hope that you've enjoyed it, and I hope to bring you similar interviews from high-quality thinkers in the future. Thank you for listening to the Stoicism on Fire podcast. If you're interested in this ancient practice of Stoicism, you will find plenty of resources at www.traditionalstoicism.com. If you're interested in a social media environment where this form of Stoicism is discussed, please join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on the platform where you listen to this podcast. That tells others this podcast is worth listening to and thereby introduces more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you have feedback or a great podcast idea for me, send me an email at chris, that's C-H-R-I-S, at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue exploring traditional Stoicism, where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. 
I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of Stoicism on fire.